Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, we're going to cover a lot of ground. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking with Kenyatta Berry. You may recall her from the PBS series Genealogy Roadshow. She's going to be talking about slavery in the 19th century, how some of the formerly enslaved went overseas to tell the public about their experiences and to put pressure on the United States. She'll also talk about some amazing escapes. Plus, I'll be talking to Josh Taylor, president of the New York Genealogical and Biographical Society about a proposal that may limit your access to New York records. And of course, at the back end of the show, more of your questions with Ask Us Anything. That's all this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect, a presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome, Genies, to America's family history show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. Well, it is great to have you aboard, Genies. We've got a big release coming out from Ancestry.com this past week, and I'm going to be talking to Todd Godfrey. He is the vice president of global content for Ancestry, and uh, this is going to be a game changer for a lot of people, no doubt. So we'll explain that a little bit later on in the show. And even sooner than that, we're going to talk to my friend Kenyatta Berry. You remember her from the Genealogy Road Show on PBS. Kenyatta is one of America's foremost experts in slavery, and we're going to talk about a great article that the BBC has published in their History Extra that includes amazing escapes by enslaved people. Hey, if you haven't signed up for our weekly Genie newsletter yet, now is the time. Get on it at ExtremeGenes.com or on our Facebook page. We give you a blog from me each week. We give you links to past and present shows and links to stories you'll be fascinated by as a genealogist. Right now, it's off to Boston, Massachusetts, where David Allen Lambert, the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org, is standing by in his office all by his lonesome. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm doing great. How's things with you? Really well, actually, because I have another cousin who gifted me another heirloom this past week. And wow. it's always fun. You know, this is a, an actual Bible from 1851. It was published in New York in 1851. And it was inscribed in 1852 by my great-great-grandfather, John Hardy. And he wrote Sarah as a token of respect from her husband, November 1st, 1852, John Hardy. And that sounds like a pretty blasé inscription. It doesn't mean much. But if you look at the family history at that time, 17 days after he inscribed that Bible, their baby daughter died at five months old. Oh, so basically, this inscription was a sign of love and tragedy at the same time. And by comparing the timeline of what was happening in the family at that time, the inscription and the gift of the Bible to his wife made perfect sense. So it's a real treasure, and I am absolutely thrilled to own it. Well, that's wonderful. It's nice that it went to someone who obviously appreciates it versus ending up on eBay. Yes, <laughs> which... Exactly. Well, you know, my cousin was concerned that the day might come when she passed, she's in her 80s, that it would wind up in a dumpster somewhere. 
because her family has no interest in it. So just delighted to have that. Hey, before we go any further, Dave, I got to send out a happy birthday greeting to the candy bomber, Gail Halverson. He's very well known because right after World War II during the Berlin airlift, he would bring in his bombers and while approaching the airport there in Germany, he would drop candy to the kids. Uh, on the ground there. Yeah. yeah, little parachutes. And he's still yeah. around celebrating his 100th birthday. We've had him on Extreme Genes in the past. And uh, I'm very excited to see that he made it to 100 years old. An amazing man. Well, I'll tell you, you just never know what you're going to get for a surprise when you get married. You know, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. But something that might make you a little blue is when your husband surprises you with a recording of your grandmother singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow back in 1947. As a teenager, yeah. And grandma's Mm -hmm. gone. She couldn't be at the wedding. And she was very close to her grandmother who passed in 2005. It's a great story, and you can find the link to it on ExtremeGenes.com. A lot of people are not making it to theaters these days, so you could say they're ghosts in the theater. Well, there's actually a show in London Pepper's Ghost has become the toast of the town with this amazing stage effect that people are blown away by. But it's not new. In fact, this imagery has been used in theater since the 1860s. And you might have actually seen it if you've been to the Haunted Mansion in Disney World in Florida, when you see the people dancing like holograms on the dance floor. Yeah. The same effect. Oh. Same principle, right. And and this uh, guy named, I think his name was Dr. Pepper, actually. He was in London in 1862, and he put on this show, and part of it was using a piece of glass to reflect an image of someone who was below stage with a full spotlight on it, and it created a ghostly figure, and the London audiences were absolutely amazed by it. And then as soon as they turned the light off, the ghost would disappear. And so they're recreating Pepper's ghost, as they call it, over in London right now. But yeah, it's the same principle as at Disney World in Florida and Disneyland in California. It's amazing to think that something that you would think is 21st century technology is actually 19th century technology. Well, a lot of controversy fish has gone up in recent years about Columbus Day, but you know, the idea of it wasn't around early on in the 1600s. People weren't really talking about it. It's actually since about the birth of our nation. In 1792, John Pintard, who was very much involved in Tammany Hall, came together with others from New York and sort of made Columbus the epicenter of their celebration. The Columbian Order Medal shows Columbus shaking hands with a Native American. It's been 100 years later for the 400th in 1892. Fed heralded all sorts of things as well as the half dollar that came out. Yeah, they had parades in New York City and all over the place. And there was a statue that was actually created back in the 18th century that kind of disappeared. Now it's down in Baltimore, and people are considering, with a modern-day view of it, to get rid of it. So they don't know what they're going to do with it. We'll find out. Yeah, the statue for Christopher Columbus that was put up in the 20th century in Boston, well, was kind of taken down because it was beheaded. The statue is now being stored away, and there's talk it may not go back up again. So that's our Family History News for this week. Thank you, David. And, of course, we'll talk to you again at the back end of the show for another round of Ask Us Anything. So recently, my wife has been reading an incredible book about Frederick Douglass, And trips he made over to the U.K. to talk about slavery. 
back in the late 1840s. And uh, I thought it was really interesting, some of the comments about how people escaped from slavery at the time. And I thought I'd get my friend Kenyatta Berry on, who's one of the nation's foremost experts on slavery. And uh, Kenyatta, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So these trips over to the UK to kind of create international pressure on the United States about slavery, this went on for some time, didn't it? It did. So a lot of the formerly enslaved that were able to successfully escape wanted to get the word up about the horrors of slavery and change the narrative, right, and tell it from their own perspective. And that's what Frederick Douglass did as well. Now, he seemed to have been uh, maybe one of the first to go over there. Yes, he was. Yeah. So he went in 1846. And so he did a tour in London. He also spoke in Dublin as well. So he was getting around uh, all the countries within the UK. And then there was this Mm -hmm. other guy that's just fascinating to me who talked about his escape, actually demonstrated it on a stage. His name was Henry Brown, and he took on the nickname Box. So he is known generally in history as Henry Box Brown. Tell us about his story. Yeah, so Henry was enslaved in Richmond and with the help of a free person of color and another gentleman who was white, he actually mailed himself to Philadelphia. So he (laughs) shipped himself private mail and arrived where abolitionists were. Wow. Yes. I mean, I couldn't imagine being in the box and, and that entire time from Virginia, Philadelphia, being discovered or the fear of being discovered, sure. right? Oh, yeah. You know, as far as someone opening the box or if they're treating the box a certain way, maybe it says fragile or whatever, you know, could he make any noises when they threw the box or said it was heavy or said anything? So, yeah, it was quite the feat. But, you know, I think that goes to kind of describe the efforts that people would go through to escape the desperation the of slavery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. absolutely yeah. Now, now, there was another couple, the Crafts, and uh, they also were part of these tours and, and were speakers about their circumstance. And they're really kind of unique. Talk about their escape. Yeah. So it was Ellen and William Craft. And so Ellen was what's known as a quadroon. And so she was the daughter of a enslaved woman and her white master. And her husband was dark skinned. And so Ellen dressed as a white planter and had her husband as her personal servant with her. So they escaped from Macon, Georgia to the north, and they arrived in Philadelphia in 1848. There was always attempts and efforts to run away from being in bondage and being enslaved. But you see a lot of this kind of leading up to the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, right? Because there were talks about it. And what the Fugitive Slave Law did was it put all of these folks in danger because Mm -hmm. it said basically anyone could capture. So if you're in Boston, you're in Philly, you're somewhere in the north, that any person that knew you were a fugitive slave or you were formerly enslaved and ran away, that they could capture you and get paid a bounty or whatever to return you to your enslavers. So a lot of these attempts came with a price. What I think we think of Henry Box Brown and especially with even Frederick Douglass, their movements to England and to Europe to kind of talk about all of this stuff, to let people know 
this is what's going on, right? You didn't have the benefit of all the stuff we have today that makes it easy for you to kind of know what's going on in a split second. You know, you had people who lived it who had to go and talk about it and describe it from their own experience and really say what you're reading in the newspaper or what you're hearing is not necessarily true. This is the true horror of what I've lived through. And that's what they did. So how did Frederick Douglass escape? So with Frederick Douglass, I actually don't know that much personally as I know the other stories because he's just so famous right. in a way because he's everyone talks about Yeah, he him. just kind of always um, seems to be there, doesn't he? He does. And what I would say I know about Frederick Douglass, there are a couple of things. One, his birthday that we celebrate, he really didn't know his actual birthday because his enslaver wouldn't tell him. The other thing about Frederick Douglass that I know is that he had his first wife, and they were in Rochester, which is where we've talked about before, my family is from. And somehow one of my very distant relatives married into the Sprague family, which is part of his family. So that's kind of interesting. But then also that his second wife, who was white, was actually the person that kind of kept his story alive. Right, because when he was doing these things in the 1840s and 1850s and talking about the horrors of slavery and giving his famous speech of what does the 4th of July mean, that was then. But, you know, with anything, as we study genealogy and history, to keep someone's story alive, there has to be a person to tell that story. Yes. There has to be someone that really wants to carry it on. And that's what his second wife did. And she really was the person to kind of push his memory into kind of the minds of Americans. And so he became famous for that. You know, it's fascinating, too. You talk about the recapturing of escaped slaves. There are a lot of free blacks also in the North that would be captured and taken back to the South as slaves. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there was Solomon Northrop, which is, of course, very famous from 12 Years a Slave. He, I think, was lured by three white men saying they wanted him to perform or do something for them. And then they ended up selling him into slavery. So that was always a fear, right? And then also for free blacks, they would have these freedom papers, right? Or they had to show something to say they were free person of color, but it's a piece of paper, you know, that could easily be destroyed or burned or torn up or whatever. And how do you in a society where most of your brethren are enslaved, show that you're a free person of color. Yeah. It's constant, constant, constant fear. So even if there were free people of color, they really weren't free, actually. Yeah. Because they still had black codes. Always a concern, always a concern. So do you have any idea what percentage of people who tried to run off from being enslaved actually made it to freedom? You know, I don't. I mean, there's a couple of ways, right? You have, we can think about the Underground Railroad, right? Right. Harriet Tubman and what she did to take people to freedom. And where I'm from, Detroit, was a major hub in getting to Canada, right? Mm -hmm. Because Windsor's just across the river. Sure. But there were slave patrols. So just that thought of trying to run away was obviously a risk. But then the start of what we know as our police today started with slave patrols. So these folks would really just go into the woods and try to find people. And if you're running away, you think about it, right? Do you run away with a child? Do you leave your family behind? Right. Right. Because you're making a big decision. A child's going to cry. That cry is going to be heard. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that you have to think about. And I don't think we really know the number 
of folks that have actually attempted to run away and were successful because a lot of times, even though the enslaved were property, they had to think about what damage they would inflict on that property. So whether it was a whipping or it was some type of maiming, that would impact the performance or labor of that property. Boy, that makes sense. Yeah, so they had to think, okay, well, what can I do to show everyone else not to run away? But yet, I still want you to be able to pick cotton or tobacco or whatever you're doing. So yeah, so it's kind of interesting when you think about it that there was always resistance. And the resistance of enslavement was not necessarily just running away as much as it was resistance in the households or resistance in the fields of being sick or not picking as much cotton or doing whatever else. There's as many books that have been written about that. And so there was no guarantee that you wouldn't be found or whatever. I mean, there's a there are a number of universities that actually have websites on runaway slave ads because those will be published. And they're very good for genealogy because they talk about, like, literally the height, the color, the weight, the clothing they had. Who yeah, they what they were wearing. To. Sure. Yeah, all of that. And those have been very, very useful. And I know Cornell has a project that they're doing with that as well. So, yeah, it's a fascinating subject. And I actually met a woman, surprisingly, who did her dissertation on runaway slave ads for children. Really? Which I thought was fascinating because I didn't know that was a thing. No, (laughs) No, I wouldn't have thought that either. I mean, how do you describe a child, right? Right. So they're doing a whole project on that, huh? There's a lot of them? Yeah, there's a lot of them. Um, so Cornell has something um, that they're doing, and then I know there are a couple other universities. And the reason why is because as we've known with genealogy, all the digitizing of newspapers and different things, we're able to see a lot of this stuff from like the 1840s and 50s. Again, the Fugitive Slave Act made it easier to kind of advertise. And you see all of these runaway ads, and I believe... I think it is the 1860 slave schedule that actually has a column for if they were like manumitted or runaways, I believe. So you kind of see everyone knows that we're heading towards this peculiar institution of slavery is going to cause some type of conflict or tension (laughs) in the country. So you can see that in the documents, which I think is fascinating. Isn't that amazing? She's Kenyatta Berry. She's one of America's foremost experts in slavery. And fascinating stories, Kenyatta. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. No problem. I love it. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it wasn't all that long ago that we started hearing about AI, artificial intelligence, and how it affects our family history research. Hey, it's Fisher. Welcome back. It's Extreme Genes, America's family history show on ExtremeGenes.com. And I'm very excited to have the vice president of global content for Ancestry.com, one of our great sponsors, Todd Godfrey, on the line today. Because, Todd, what an announcement you've got for us this past week. Yeah, hi, Scott. How are you? It's great to be with you today. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, we're announcing the launch of our next newspapers.com index. It's the newspapers.com marriage index collection. Well, this is so huge because just last year you rolled out the obituaries, and I'm looking at some of the numbers. (laughs) You started out with three quarters of a billion newspaper obituaries, and now that's up to over 810,000, so another 60 million added this year. 
And this is all done automatically. And when I think back, Todd, to when I first started researching in the early 80s, I mean, these are all the things we had to do manually and analytically. And it was a lot of work to find not only the papers, but the microfilms and all this. But to imagine that computers are going through and going, oh, I see that name. And it attaches it potentially to your trees that are online. It's just mind blowing. Yeah, these machine learning algorithms are just amazing, aren't they? I look today at the website. There's 616 million pages today on that newspaper's website. It's got to scan through all those pages, basically find the paragraphs that are obituaries, not the you know the story about the local farmer. And then once it finds the paragraph, you know, scan through, find all the names, dates, and places, and organize it really into a tree, all those relationships. And then to be able to provide that straight from the machine to, to users as hints and recommendations on their tree on Ancestry, it's, it's really been enjoyable. You know, just the last year that collection's been up, over 2 million people have made discoveries with it. I think the discovery count so far is over 106 million. Wow. <laughs> That's yeah. incredible. Well, the thing is, too, obituaries and now the marriage records will often include yeah. a lot of story material in there about where they lived and what the occupations were. And, of course, all the relationships. I mean, if you're looking for parents or step relationships or whatever it may be, there are so many of them. And what are we going to start out with with the marriages? How many do you know? Yeah, so far in this first batch that we're launching, there's almost 220 million names in the collection. Wow. So it's a great it's a great start. Uh, we've got more batches coming later this year and, and, of course, into next year as well as more newspaper pages are scanned every day. Uh, we keep adding to the collection, but it's a wonderful start. And talk about the stories. Many of these marriage announcements get quite long and detailed about, you know, even who attended the wedding and, and whether flowers were provided and donated. And it's, it's quite a story in and of itself to tell, which, you know, the newspapers generally, right, are just so rich with story detail. And, and on that newspaper's website, well, you can get lost and spend many, many hours exploring all kinds of things about your family. These marriage records are a really great way to get started and, and to kind of get introduced to that website. Well, it's really true. And, you know, we talk so much about DNA these days and all the amazing things we can do with it. And to a certain extent, I think it's really overshadowed the newspapers because I think newspapers are right at the same level as DNA because it can reveal so much concerning stories. And, of course, DNA isn't really an effective tool if you don't have the records by which you can connect your matches, right? And I think newspapers play a huge role in that. Uh, I absolutely agree. And it's not just the stories of your ancestors specifically, but it's also just the context for where they lived and what was happening in their local town at key moments in their lives. You know, and you put that together with the historical records that we get from the ancestry side of the equation and your family tree really comes alive. Yeah, it really does. So this is out now as of what, the 19th, right? That's correct. This is going to be really fun to dive into this and just see what's out there that we've missed in the past. And, you know, one thing I like to share with uh, my followers is that there's a lot of benefit to reverse genealogy when you're trying to tie into your DNA matches. And there's no better way to do this than finding the marriage records of the siblings of your ancestors and then pull forward to try to find out who some of these people are so you can identify who some of your matches are. I mean, it's a huge benefit. Absolutely. And each one of these discoveries leads to the next one. So as you find a marriage announcement that's of a relative and add that to your family tree, you're typically adding all of these names from that announcement into your tree at the same time, each one of which could trigger new hints, new recommendations for you, a path to follow in your research. And, and it's a great way to work up and down the tree in, in making discoveries. So we do get a shaky leaf out of this, right? 
if you if you've got Absolutely. a tree up there and then you're going to look in there and you're going to find that oh wait a minute here's a hint that uh, you can find this on newspapers.com that's correct so we have taken the marriage collection and we have looked at all of the trees that our users have and made connections and generated hints and have hints prepared and ready to go for everyone to be able to come in and discover where the collection touches their tree and as you bring that record up and take a look you'll see all of the people in the record that may be relevant to you, mm-hmm. and then you can decide which of them to add into your family tree. And once you do so, we'll go and check all of those individuals for new discoveries in the collection as well. And so it does create this cycle, this ability to continue to make additional discoveries from the first one that you make in the collection. Yeah, it really is a cycle. You know, just the other day, and you, you talk about the obituaries, I popped in a cousin from a couple of generations back and discovered a child. They already had 11 kids in the family, and I found one other that had died that was not on anybody's record anywhere. There was no death record, but it was in the newspaper that the infant son of this man had passed away. And uh, so we we got some information there that was brand new that I thought, well, we got to get that up there. We got to share that with people. And this is a great way to fill in those gaps. Absolutely. It's such a great compliment to the historical records that we have, too, because there are instances where there are gaps or there are instances where there are counties or maybe towns that we haven't acquired all the records yet and have all the records on the site. But we do have the newspapers that will cover a lot of those same stories. And so it's a great compliment. I think the best part is when you get into the newspapers, because this is really kind of an introduction, as was obituaries last year. And really the introduction to AI with the yearbooks right before that. But getting into newspapers now, you can find the everyday stories on your people as well. In fact, just two days ago, I found a stash of stories on my mother and her family in Albany, Oregon, during the 1930s and 1940s, everything from advertising that they had plums for sale right next to the, the elementary school. And my mother was in the school play and her name was headlined for that big night when they were going to be opening. And, and I'm just looking at all this material and thinking, boy, it really captures the time and the feel for the place as if it's happening right now. We don't look at it in the, the broad sweeps of history. We can look at it and say, look, look how it was exactly as it was day to day, just as we live today. You know, I, I've been on my own journey the last year or two as I've been researching my birth parents, finding out that I was adopted and trying to discover and learn more about them. So I don't have any context or any family lore or stories about what life was like for them. The newspapers have been that for me. They've been that opportunity to really understand someone that I don't know and someone that is new to me. And uh, I've made some tremendous discoveries, both about them, but also about my adopted family and, and, you know, insights about my mom and my dad that have made for uh, good family stories. And in some cases, you know, just some some good family fun time as we recite those stories together. Amazing. Have you found some photographs of them as a result of the newspapers? I have, which has been really helpful and insightful. And it just reconfirms what I've found through the DNA process which is, yep, that's definitely my, that's definitely my birth family. Because <laughs> you look like them, right? Yeah, you can't, those facial features, you just can't, you just can't get away, right? <laughs> it's terrific. This journey we've been on with the newspaper collection with this technology has, has really been amazing. From the obituaries now today, we've got this marriage index collection that we're making available and, and adding. There's still so much of the newspaper left that we're obviously yeah. turning our attention to now. You know, there are more difficult challenges, but how can we, you know, strengthen the machine learning algorithms to help us extract more information out of these newspapers. Todd Godfrey, thanks so much for coming on. (laughs) He's the vice president of global content for Ancestry.com. They've just released their new marriage index from newspapers.com. It's going to be huge. And uh, great talking to you, Todd. Looking forward to your next big announcement. 
Thank you, Scott. We'll come back and let you know about it. All right, back at it for Ask Us Anything on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show and ExtremeGenes.com. Fisher here with David Allen Lambert, the Chief Genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. And uh, David, our question today is from Hal Mitchell in Huntsville, Alabama. He says, Fisher and Dave, you guys uh, talk sometimes about collecting ancestor things. I know a lot of that is pretty rare. How do you go about it? Good question and probably a longer answer, don't you think, Dave? I think so. There's just so many different ways that you can do this. I mean, from contacting relatives that you remember as a kid seeing something in their dining room that was a family heirloom your grandmother pointed out and making sure that they don't sell it on eBay. Yeah, (laughs) that's a good point. And you know, a lot of cousins have things like this too. And those who are getting a little bit older are often thinking, boy, where is this treasure going to go? Because they might not have kids or they might not have kids who are interested in it. Just like the Bible I received this past week that I mentioned at the front end of the show. You know, I'll mention right here, Hal, that I'm looking at several items that I've collected. Uh, One is a medal that was presented to the New York City Veteran Firemen's Association in the 1890s on a trip they made, and my great-grandfather belonged to that, and I found an antique store online that sold those, and I thought, boy, I'd like to own one because I'm sure my great-grandfather did. I'm also looking at a little shadow box of three rocks. One is from a brick wall in the backyard of my fourth great grandfather in northern Yorkshire. Another Mm -hmm. actually fell out of the ceiling of the church that my immigrant ancestors got married in and with permission of the priest who hadn't cleaned up the mess yet. He gave me one of those. It's the oldest church in London. And then another one came from the churchyard in which my second great-grandfather Fisher was christened in 1800. So these rocks cost nothing, but they Mm -hmm. still have a connection to a place. And these other things cost very little. And they didn't have to come from relatives anywhere. You didn't have to trace them down. Now, I think, obviously, the best stuff, the things that your ancestors own, things along those lines, like the Bibles, like old photographs, like old documents, are going to come within your family And I've always maintained that you and your relatives comprise various branches to your family archives. Well, you know, that's true. I actually have a cousin that has a wooden canteen that belonged to my Revolutionary War ancestor. I always tell him, when you're looking to sell it, let me know, because his children were adopted. To them, it might be just something they can sell. Hopefully, it's something I can buy. A lot of times... We have to rescue this stuff, and you have to be diligent to just ask those questions of your older relatives or older siblings and say, listen, I don't want to see this family history lost. What can we do about it? I mean, it could be just as simple as a little note put in the bottom of that tea kettle that belonged to your great-great-grandmother or a note on the back of that framed picture. Please don't throw it away. Please don't give this to the churchyard sale. Cousin Bob is interested in this. Sure. That's really good. And, you know, I should mention, you're absolutely right. Back in 1990, I found a third cousin in California, and he had a day book that my great-grandfather's brother had kept of day-to-day business in New York City, and that man was a partner with my great-grandfather. Well, the Mm. third cousin died a few years back, and I got a nice haul of stuff, but that book was missing. 
from the stuff. And I don't know where it went, and I think it's probably lost from the family forever. Fortunately, I took pictures of it. So we do have the information that was in it in his original hand, but we don't have the book itself. So things do get lost over time, and that's why it's really important to make contact with people right now, and don't be shy about it. I think that persistence really does pay off. And uh, Dave, this is from Leah in Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, Leah asks, guys, tell me about your use of eBay in tracking family heirlooms. And of course, this is kind of a tie into the previous question. And I got to tell you right now, there there is no end to family heirlooms you can find on that. In fact, I found all four of my dad's original high school yearbooks on eBay. He signed every one of them, the first one when he was 14 years old. And I found all kinds of pictures in there that I had never seen before and got all four of them for a total of $50. It was an amazing buy, and I'm thrilled to have them, even though Ancestry has some of those yearbooks online now. That's true, but I think there is nothing better than holding an original book that may have had some association with your dad, or at least one of his classmates in your hand, versus flipping through it on archive.org or ancestry.com. Totally. I mean, it's great if you don't have the book, but if you can have it, you know, being a bit of an ancestral hoarder myself, I'd love to have these artifacts. In fact, I use eBay all the time on a local level to search for things from my hometown and using MA for one version, MASS for another, and Massachusetts for another when I'm searching for a particular town. And that's really the best clue to add is, you know, you want to search for your family's artifacts that might be on the internet. Well, I'm not going to just search for Lambert. I'm going to come across everything from Jack Lambert from the Pittsburgh Steelers to Warner Lambert Listerine bottles. I mean, that's not going to help me. But if you (laughs) add in other key words, you can sometimes narrow them down except for when I'm searching for my grandmother's family. I'm looking for a document signed by one of her relatives. Yeah, the last name is Poor. So every poor condition document that comes up on eBay is not going to be of any help right. to my genealogy. No, that's going to be a problem. And, you know, the thing, though, about eBay is you can basically set a trap. You set these terms like Dave was describing there for what you're looking for, maybe about a particular individual plus a particular town and location. Yeah. And anytime something comes up with those search terms, you're going to find that you get an email sent to your email address. And then you can look yeah. it over and and I get material every day that relates to some of those search terms. And very, very rarely does something come up related to it. Boy, but when they do, it's pretty exciting. In fact, a couple of years ago, I found three invoices that were created by my great-grandfather's business in New York City in the 1870s and 1880s. And I was able to buy all of them, enough, in fact, to provide one to each of my kids who would enjoy having this document with the family name at the top of it from the 19th century. It's a great way of finding lost family items, too, that have say maybe one of your relatives had died and maybe their grandkids decided, I don't want this stuff. I'm going to put it on eBay. Well, you put up those alerts and you'll get notification. I had a uh, person that was on my hometown who had died. And I know that his niece, instead of giving it to the local historical society, saw dollar signs in her eyes and started listing the stuff on eBay. Well, I rescued a lot. But you know, I wasn't able to buy everything. But his wishes were that these things were to go to our historical site. Photos of the town that he took in the 1920s, he wanted us to have. But I rescued some of them, but not all of them. We should mention, too, Dave, that family Bibles are on there all the time. And some of these go way, way back. And they are true treasures. And usually, even as far as the price is concerned, they're within reach. 
Yeah, no, they really are. I mean, unless you've got like a 17th century Bible, there's probably a good chance that you could buy it for under a couple hundred dollars. Yeah, imagine that, having your ancestors' family group record filled out in an old Bible that you can own. There are dozens of them on there at all times. So thanks for the question. And of course, if you have a question for Ask Us Anything in the future, you just have to email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. Next week, Dave, talk to you then. Sorry, talk to you soon. And that's our show for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. Talk to you next week. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to familysearch.org.